The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, May 21st. I'm Aaron Schechter. NATO leaders agree to end the Afghan war in 2014. Also, women in Afghanistan worry about being sidelined by NATO's talks with the Taliban. We may not love the idea of these negotiations, but if we are not uh, at the table, we might be on the menu. And later, new revelations about British officials who spied for Japan during World War II. One of the guys was actually at Pearl Harbor for the Japanese filming the American fleet in the run-up to Pearl Harbor. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Yemen is a frontline country in the global fight against terrorism. In fact, the U.S. has recently stepped up its drone strikes against militants there. Today, the militants replied with a strike of their own. As Yemeni soldiers rehearsed for a military parade in the capital, Sana'a, a suicide bomber among them set off a horrific explosion. Officials say it killed more than 90 soldiers and wounded hundreds more. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula claimed responsibility, saying in a statement that it was revenge for attacks on its militants by U.S. and Yemeni forces. Jamie Doran is a producer for our partner program, Frontline. He recently returned from Yemen, where he filmed the very unit of elite soldiers attacked this morning. He joins us from his office in Windsor, England. Jamie, what can you tell us about these particular soldiers and why they were targeted? Um, well, largely because the, the, the soldiers come under General Yahya Saleh. Now, he is the nephew of President Saleh, former President Saleh. Uh, he's also one of the most powerful men in Yemen. And I think what al-Qaeda was doing was basically saying, wherever you are, we can get you, showing that they can basically get uh, their own infiltrators wherever is possible. You have to understand uh, Yahya's soldiers are renowned for being very loyal to him, uh, and yet here al-Qaeda managed to infiltrate. It's quite extraordinary. Now, these troops are referred to as elite soldiers, uh, these ones under Mr. Uh, Saleh. Is that the case? Are they well-trained, well-equipped, and so on? Well, in terms of Yemeni military, they're certainly amongst the very, very best. But I have to add a wee proviso there in the sense that the Yemeni army is not the most effective army in the world by a couple of million miles. It's this power vacuum that has allowed al-Qaeda to grow in the south and indeed to operate way beyond. But no, I'm not sure if many people were quite expecting such a spectacular and awful attack as today. Did you get a chance to see this group training? I did. I, I managed to, uh, I was with them, in fact, when they were, it wasn't really training, they were actually uh, meeting um, literally thousands of them in, in a big field nearby where the bombing was today. And of course, the boss was there, Yaya Sally was there, and I interviewed him at the time. 
and he was really insistent on emphasizing how dangerous al-Qaeda had become, how widespread it had become. But in fact, many people in Yemen believe that it was his uncle, the former president, who actually allowed this to happen in order to actually, if you like, be requested to come back into power and become the saviour of Yemen once again. But uh, it doesn't look as if that's going to happen now. What is the security situation like in Sana'a? What, what does it say that this group could strike at the, the heart of the Yemeni capital? The security situation in Sana'a is disastrous. You have so many rival groups. You have tribal groups that uh, have huge power and hold large swathes of the city. You have uh, different army groups, opposing army groups. It, it's absolutely perfect for al-Qaeda to thrive. So in a sense, it sounds like you weren't especially surprised by this attack. It wasn't a question of, of whether, but when. I think this is the first of many. I think it's going to, you're going to see it happen across Yemen. Uh, you will see a heavy reaction in the south, uh, mainly because, of course, you have this so-called advance of 25,000 soldiers against al-Qaeda. Now, remember, al-Qaeda is supposed to only have a few hundred members. Why 25,000 army personnel can't destroy al-Qaeda or push them out? Uh, it is a kind of difficult one for them to answer. The truth is that the army, the northern army, is seen as uh, an occupation force in the south, and the tribes in the south tend more towards al-Qaeda than to the army itself. So I think Yemen itself, for quite a long time, is going to be a dangerous land, not just for Yemenis, but obviously, as al-Qaeda gains more support, there are going to be more bomb plots that the one, like the ones we've seen recently. Jamie Doran is a producer for Frontline. His film, Al-Qaeda in Yemen, airs May 29th. Jamie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. President Obama's focus was on Afghanistan today. On the second and final day of the NATO summit in Chicago, Obama and other leaders signed a pact to officially end the war in Afghanistan in 2014. The agreement calls for an irreversible transition in the country, with Afghan forces in charge of security by next summer. That transition was also discussed at another summit in Chicago yesterday. It was a shadow summit on Afghan women, organized by Amnesty International. Journalist Gail Lamont has reported widely on Afghanistan's women, and she was at the meeting. In fact, she moderated a panel there that included former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Laman says that when it comes to deciding Afghanistan's future... Women do still remain in the shadows of the conversation. And I think that was the point of Amnesty, trying to bring a number of people together to have this discussion. And one thing that was so interesting was Secretary of State Albright talking about the fact that she still has to persuade policymakers. She and Ambassador Revere and Secretary Clinton and a number of others still have to persuade policymakers that women should be at the table rather than with their noses pressed against the window. And why do you think this isn't part of the discussion? You know, I asked them that on the panel, and their answer was that because it's still seen as a trade-off, right, supporting women versus supporting security, rather than one complementing the other, that when you have women involved in their communities, communities are more stable, more secure, and more financially prosperous, which does make a difference in terms of the security. And we're not talking about fancy things. We're talking about the right to go to work and the right to go to school to contribute to their own communities. And I think trying to frame it as a plus rather than a trade-off is the challenge facing policymakers. 
Now, you were part of two panels at the uh, Shadow Summit. Did you hear anything at the conference that you hadn't heard before? You know, I, you know I've you done a lot of reporting, so most of it I'd heard, but there was a really fascinating debate between two women leaders about whether or not Taliban negotiations were a good idea and possibly fruitful. On one side, you know, one group of Afghan women who were there at the table said, you know, look, you can't negotiate with the Taliban because they've tried that in Pakistan and they promised they would protect girls' schools and women's right to work. And those promises went to, you know, nothing almost immediately. And then there on the other side, there were women who said, look, we have to be at the table. We may not love the idea of these negotiations, but if we are not uh, at the table, as Congresswoman Schakowsky says, uh, we might be on the menu. So I think that is what the discussion really centered around. Do you engage or do you not? What has to change, do you think, in order to ensure that the progress that has been made for women in Afghanistan continues rather than going backwards? I think there is a lot that is still to be done. And the question is really whether you go back to a time you know, in 2001, where women couldn't leave the house by themselves, couldn't go to work, couldn't get educated, or whether you build on some of the gains that have been made. Um, And when you spend time on the ground with men and women who are really fighting for their societies, you realize that the desire for progress and the hunger to be part of the rest of the world is enormous, particularly among the young generation. What I do get concerned about in terms of the future for some of the people I've reported on for years, is that I think for years the international community has seen women as a pet project rather than a stability indicator. And the truth is that in neighborhoods and in communities where women are contributing, you do see the benefits to families, to men and to women. And I still think it goes back to people seeing this as an either-or rather than something that benefits everyone. Journalist Gail Lamont speaking to us about yesterday's Shadow Summit on Afghan women. That was alongside the NATO Summit in Chicago. She's the author of The Dressmaker of Kar Kana. Thanks very much, Gail. Thank you. In 1941, Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor dealt a devastating blow to the U.S. Pacific Fleet. More than 2,000 Americans were killed. All eight U.S. Navy battleships in the harbor were hit. Four were sunk and 188 American aircraft went up in flames. A BBC TV documentary sheds new light on just how the Japanese were able to carry out the deadly assault. Newly uncovered documents show how some British officials passed on secrets that allowed the Japanese to carry out the attack. Paul Elston produced and wrote the documentary. Well, not a lot of people know this, but in the early 1920s, there was uh, a British air mission to Japan, and it was semi-official at that time. So what they were doing from 1920 to 22 was not illegal, but they were basically training the Japanese how to use aircraft carriers, how to fly on and off the decks of carriers, how to sink ships using torpedoes in port and bombs from the air. However, under American pressure... Britain, which had had an alliance with Japan, up until that point, ended that alliance. What's really interesting about these guys is they obviously formed very strong links with the Japanese and they carried on supplying them information and technology long after it was illegitimate. In fact, one of the guys, who was called uh, Rutland, was actually spying on the American fleet at Pearl Harbor for the Japanese filming the American fleet in the run-up to Pearl Harbor. Were they looking for money? Was it idealism? Any understanding of of why they were doing this? They were certainly being paid. We know that. 
But I think there was a strong ideological link, certainly in the case of this uh, British aristocrat, uh, Lord Semple was his name. He developed an affinity with the Japanese, but he also had an affinity with right-wing militarist regimes. He was uh, anti-American. He would belong to... uh, membership of a couple of fairly unpleasant British organisations that were pro-Nazi. And, you know, in a word, I think he thought Britain was fighting the wrong war, you know, that uh, Britain shouldn't be in a war against Germany and should be in a war in alliance with Germany and Japan against Russia. And is there any indication of what difference this intelligence made in the war? Is this attack on Pearl Harbor or no attack? Is it that big a deal? You must remember, Japan didn't have a single aircraft carrier in 1922. By 1930, they had a fleet in equal in size and strength to the Royal Navy. They did in seven years what it should have taken 10 and 15 to do. It's absolutely unimaginable that Japan would have been able to conduct that attack in December 1941 without British help and without help from those people specifically, the ones that we've uncovered in this film. Were the Englishmen ever punished for passing these uh, the secrets along? One of them was. He was interned, although never formally charged and had his case aired in a court of law. The other one, Semple, was never touched. He was given warnings on many, many occasions, but he was never charged or prosecuted. Why wasn't more made of this incident at the time? Why has it taken so long to uncover this information? Can you imagine how embarrassing it would have been during the Second World War to have put a British serviceman or perhaps British servicemen in the plural on trial for passing on information to the Japanese? It just would have created a huge fury in Britain and America and goodness knows what damage it would have done to the Anglo-American relationship. Paul Elston produced a new BBC TV documentary about British servicemen who passed on secrets to the Japanese prior to World War II. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Egyptians have waited more than a year for a chance to elect their first post-revolution president. This week, starting on Wednesday, they finally get to cast their ballots. Thirteen candidates are vying for the job. Two of them are Islamists. One has the backing of the powerful Muslim Brotherhood. The other is a former Brotherhood member. Both have strong Islamic credentials, and each is seeking to portray himself as the best choice for Egyptians who supported the revolution. The world's Middle East correspondent Matthew Bell reports. Drive northeast from Cairo for about two hours, and the landscape changes from a vast, lifeless desert to lush greenery. The city of Ismailia sits on the Suez Canal. It's famous for seafood restaurants and mangoes. It's also the place where the Muslim Brotherhood was founded back in 1928. On the outskirts of Ismailia, down a dusty road, a little mosque hosts an influential Muslim cleric. 
Sheikh Syed Ahmed Ali is a leader with the Salafi Call, an Islamic fundamentalist group whose ideological allies won nearly one in four votes in last year's parliamentary elections. Ali is here to talk about one thing, the presidential race. Judging from their clothes and their beards, the men sitting in rows on the crimson carpet here are poor and deeply religious, which goes for a huge swath of Egypt's population of 80 million people. The sheikh tells them it is their duty before Allah to vote this week. After being persecuted and imprisoned by the previous government, he says, the Egyptian revolution is our chance to revive Islam. We need a president to prepare Egypt for Islamic Sharia law. We need a president who knows that Egypt is the greatest Islamic country in the world. It's a straightforward, ultra-conservative message, but Ali, it turns out, supports Abdelmenem Abul Fatouh, the candidate who presents himself as an Islamist moderate. Back in Ismailia's city center, Abul Fatouh's supporters are having a small rally. Hamdi Mohammed Hassan is there, sporting a business suit and a Salafi-style beard, He's with the political branch of Al-Gama al-Islamiyah. In the 1990s, the group waged a violent campaign to impose Islamic rule on Egypt. It was declared a terrorist group by the United States. Many of the leaders were imprisoned, and they renounced violence almost 10 years ago. Now, just like the sheikh back in the mosque, Hassan is engaged in politics, and he's throwing his support behind the independent Islamist candidate Abdelmenem Abul Fatouh. He's a physician by training and a former Muslim Brotherhood leader. I believe that the real Islamic thinking or the real school of thought of, of being Islamist is to gather people around you. Islam has no racism and no exclusion, so we, we don't need to exclude anyone. And that he's belonging to this school of thought to gather all people without excluding anyone and also without making any compromises. On Friday night in Cairo, 60-year-old Abu Futua held a huge rally in an upscale part of the city. The event aimed to portray the candidate as the best choice for all those Egyptians who support the revolution, whether they're conservative Muslims or not. The crowd was diverse. On stage with Abu Futua were some well-known Islamist leaders, along with some Christians, women with no headscarves, socialists, and secular liberals as well. Wael Ghonim of Google, one of the leaders in last year's uprising against Hosni Mubarak, gave a full-throated endorsement of Abu Futua as the best hope for keeping the revolution alive. The candidate's supporters see Abu Futua as a true independent. He spent many years with the Muslim Brotherhood, but he was forced out last year. At the time, the organization was against putting up a presidential candidate, Abu Futua decided to make a run on his own, and for some conservative Muslims, that independence is also seen as a liability. Supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood's presidential candidate, Mohamed Morsi, took part in another rally of thousands last night in downtown Cairo. Speaking with people here, their focus is more on the Brotherhood's program and its grand plan than on Morsi himself. In fact, the engineering professor was the Islamic group's second choice to run for president. Their first pick was disqualified by the Electoral Commission. But that's beside the point for one voter who tells me his name is Ahmed. 
فيهاش كلام الشريعه الاسلاميه الشريعه الاسلاميه دي يعني دي ما فيهاش اي كلام ما فيهاش اي نقاش Islamic Sharia law, of course, is the most important issue, he says. We are Muslims. Allah provided us with Sharia as our constitution, and this is how we should be ruled. The idea that Islam is the solution to most of Egypt's problems is definitely part of Mohamed Morsi's message. That might make him the preferred choice for more hardline Islamists, but it could also turn some voters off. Last fall, the Brotherhood's Freedom and Justice Party won an astonishing 40% of the seats in the new parliament. Since then, the performance of the Islamist-dominated parliament has been a real letdown for many Egyptians. So it's an open question whether voters are willing to give the Muslim Brotherhood, which already dominates the legislature, the power of the presidency as well. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. Get a sense of election fever in Egypt. Matthew sent us a slideshow from the streets of Cairo. That's at theworld.org. Here's a bit of history for today's GeoQuiz. On this day, May 21st, in 1864, the Imperial Russian Army forced the leaders of a rebellion to surrender. The rebels were Circassians, a distinct ethnic group in the Caucasus Mountains in what's now southern Russia. Their rebellion lasted a generation, and it ended in what their descendants call a genocide. Circassians are marking the anniversary today by unfurling traditional green flags outside Russian embassies and consulates around the world, including in the U.S. They want the suffering of their ancestors to be officially recognized. But that's not their only issue. They're upset that the city they consider their ancestral capital is being turned into an Olympic venue. For today's quiz, we want you to name the city on the Black Sea. We'll hear more about the Circassians and their concerns. But first, you got to come up with the answer. Now from disputed territory to disputed bones. An eight-foot-tall skeleton of a dinosaur sold at a New York auction yesterday for more than a million dollars. The fossil is a nearly complete skeleton of a two-legged Tarbosaurus, kind of a cousin of T-Rex. But there's a problem. The president of Mongolia says the bones belong to his country. Greg Rohan is president of Dallas-based Heritage Auctions, which conducted yesterday's sale. He told the BBC that Mongolia's claim is suspect. The skeleton entered the United States from the U.K., and it entered the United States legally. The gentlemen, the consigners to us, uh, brought it in and then spent a year of their lives uh, restoring it and preserving it and then placed it in a public auction knowing that it would be uh, promoted worldwide. The concept or the thought that this is something that is um, not with clear title or was illegally taken from someplace seems absurd to us because if you had a pr- something like that, you would presumably sell it to someone in a back room for a suitcase full of cash, not put it on the public stage, uh, on the worldwide stage, really. Rohan says the fossil was discovered in the Gobi Desert, but it's not clear from which country he may have to find out. A judge in Dallas has ordered Heritage to hold off on the sale. A hearing is scheduled for next month. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media.
I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead, an exam for 11-year-olds that decided the life paths of many Britons. Once scrapped, it may be making a comeback. For some who took it, the exam was unforgettable. It was daunting. You knew that a lot was to happen on this day and a lot hung on what happened on that day. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This week, we're focusing on something that's common to societies across the globe, the propensity to divide ourselves into social classes. Of course, how class is defined varies from place to place. For some, it's lineage. For some, it's caste. For others, it's about wealth. Where or even if you take a vacation can define your social status. So can the way you talk or how you dress or what you do for a living. Over the next few days, we'll explore the role class plays in the modern world and ask some questions. Are class divisions changing or disappearing altogether? Are we moving beyond the age of social class? We'll visit Egypt, Ukraine, China, and India. But we begin in a country long known for its social divisions, Britain. And we'll look at a generational study that offers some clues to the nature of social class, The study's current director, Diana Koo, says it began just after World War II when British health officials commissioned a report on births. They were worried that the British population was declining and that women weren't having children. Why was that? So in March 1946, it was a week in that March that they chose to interview all the mothers who had a baby, and that was about 17,000 babies. The report surprised officials. It showed that the birth rate was rising. It also showed stark differences in things like birth weight and survival in the first year of life, depending on social circumstances. Ku says the physician who wrote the report decided to stay in touch with more than 5,000 of the families and keep tabs on their health. And he saw that here was an opportunity to follow up a sample of these boys and girls and to see whether the kinds of things he was discovering about how the world they were born in as babies were those kind of social inequalities going to continue. Indeed, those inequalities did continue to affect the health of participants as they grew older. And even though Britain launched a program of social modernization to tear down its antiquated class system, the lives of those babies born in 1946 were largely dictated by the class they were born into. We have this belief that somehow people can go right from the bottom to the top, and, um, you know, that doesn't happen, actually. Today, we're going to hear from two of the participants in that British study, and we're going to focus on their education. During their childhood, the government had high hopes that a new school system would make Britons more socially mobile. But among the students growing up in that system, there were winners and there were losers. And it all hinged on one exam. Here's the world's Patrick Cox. Leslie Abbotts and David Ward were born in 1946, within a few days of each other and within a few miles of each other. They were born in similar social circumstances. I was the eldest of two daughters, so I was their firstborn. They'd waited a long time for me because of the war. Leslie Ebbett's family was working class. Both her parents left school at 15 as soon as they could get factory jobs. David Ward's family was also humble. 
my dad left school at 13 and missed a lot of school because a lot of the time he hadn't got shoes to go to school you know it was the depression his dad was a piano tuner and people were burning their pianos during the depression they weren't um, hiring people to tune them both ward and ebbets went to state-run elementary schools in or near london leslie ebbets fondly recalls those early years at school quite happy there very happy there i became quite good at reading because i remember instructing the others you know in groups but it all came crashing round the ears at 11. What came crashing round the ears was an exam, an exam that recently had been introduced by the British government. It was called the 11 plus. If you passed it, you went to one type of school. If you failed it, you went to another. The 11 plus came along and, I mean, it's been the bane of my life, really. Looking back now, it, it was certainly the biggest single determinant of my future. David Ward remembers the day he took the 11-plus exam. He knew at the time that if he passed it, he'd be among the chosen few, plucked from the working classes to be enrolled in a top-tier government-run school and likely college after that. On the morning of the exam, he says that's what he was thinking about as he walked into a grand, unfamiliar building. And it's a great classical fronted place with a big steps and a colonnaded portico and there's you in your your 11 year old little shorts and funny shoes and shirt going in to take this exam in this place and it was it was daunting you knew that a lot was to happen on this day and a lot hung on what happened on that day a terrifying moment but ward passed the exam along with three others in his class of 60 they had earned themselves places in elite schools that in Britain were called grammar schools. At his new school, Ward was exposed to many new things and new people, including a teacher who drove a flashy car and lived in central London. We were going to see a play in Greek at a place near him, so he invited us for supper, and I didn't know what supper was, so we all turned up, three or four of us, and, and uh, he was playing Handel sonatas on his stereo and this supper included olives which I'd never seen before and so you're in this amazingly sophisticated atmosphere and he sort of gave me a glimpse of another world. Ward liked what he saw. He went to college and then became a reporter and turned it into a career at the respected national paper The Guardian. It's a career that a generation before would have been nearly impossible for a working-class kid. But now that route from humble beginnings through the 11-plus and grammar school to college was open, and many people took it, among the most prominent five British prime ministers, including Margaret Thatcher. But for all the benefits of the few who passed the 11-plus, what about the others, the majority who failed? They were sent to schools called secondary moderns. The British government tried to explain its new two-tiered school system in public service announcements. Well, now, Janet, you've come to the secondary school, secondary modern school. You know that that is what it is called, don't you? Yes, we were rather sorry Janet failed the 11-plus. Well, I, th I hardly think that failed is the right word, Mrs Kitchen. She would have failed the test had she been selected for the wrong school. And therefore, if she's been selected for the right school, then she's really passed the test. Many parents didn't buy that argument, and secondary moderns quickly became viewed as places where ungifted children ended up, where they were housed until they were old enough to go to work. That's how Leslie Ebbett saw it. We weren't really educated to uh, become anything more, whereas I think at grammar school you really were. Ebbett's didn't go on to college. No one did from her school. 
but she did become successful. She got a foot in the fashion industry and started writing articles for the popular press and doing spots on the radio. She'd visit boutiques frequented by celebrities. So I just went round and found out, you know, where Jagger was getting his boots or, you know, whatever it might be. And then I'd go on on a Saturday night and reel out all this stuff and everybody lapped it up. And then I got a job on a, a magazine called Rave, which was just fabulous. I got a pad in Chelsea. I had an orange mini and... Yeah, I suppose it was. Two fingers to people who called me a failure at 11. Two fingers being the British version of the middle finger. And yet, Ebbets couldn't shake the feeling that she'd been denied an education and a certain type of life. She was making money, but in Britain, class is about more than money. And Ebbets' choice of profession wasn't held in especially high esteem. Had she passed the 11-plus and gone on to grammar school and college, she thinks she would have risen to a more respectable career. Even now, failing the 11-plus plagues her. If one suffers a major rejection or a major bereavement, I'm back with it again. I'm dealing with how to deal with failure again with another therapist. In the 1970s, long after Leslie Abbotts and David Ward had left school, Britain stopped requiring students to take the 11-plus exam, and it got rid of most grammar schools. The two-tiered school system had become unpopular. The majority of kids were failing their exams and going to secondary modern schools, and their parents, many of them, thought the system was unfair. Compounding this was research showing that the 11-plus was culturally biased in favour of the middle and upper classes. The government responded to the public outcry and made the 11-plus exam optional. But just when grammar schools were being phased out, social mobility began declining. Was it the 11-plus exam and grammar schools that made the difference? Oxford University sociologist Adam Swift has studied this issue. He says Britain was undoubtedly more socially mobile in the days of grammar schools. It is true that if you managed to get into a grammar school, it's certainly true that you'd be likely to do better than if you'd gone to a secondary modern. But, Swift says, when it comes to Britain's very poorest kids... Only a tiny fraction passed the 11-plus and went on to grammar schools. And even for those who did and climbed up the socio-economic ladder, they fell short at the very top. So there was no real kind of boost to mobility up into the top quarter, although it did kind of help you get into the top half a little bit. But this isn't the prevailing view among a new generation of politicians. Many now believe that the 11-plus and grammar schools were the key to Britain's golden age of social mobility. They say the smart working-class kids of today no longer have a pathway to success. And so, the two-tiered system is gradually coming back. The Conservative-led government has made it easier for Britain's few remaining grammar schools to expand. A few weeks ago, the first grammar school campus to open in decades was approved. That's not something that Leslie Ebbets welcomes. She says she'd hate to see the old system come back, with most poorer kids denied a good education. 55 years after she failed the 11-plus, Ebbett says she's grateful only that she and a handful of others transcended that failure. So we made it in the end, some of us, but I think that an awful lot were completely wasted. Surprisingly, perhaps, David Ward feels the same way. He knows that he was one of the few beneficiaries of the system, but he doesn't think it really worked. Broadly speaking, he says, the rich have stayed rich and the poor have stayed poor, despite a school exam that was designed to change that. The whole history of this thing seems to me to prove that that gap never narrows. 
that every step you make to improve the lot of the poor or the people who've missed out on education, nothing much has changed, which is a bit chilling to think of, really, after all that time. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. You can see photos of David Ward and Leslie Ebbets and test yourself. We have some sample 11-plus exam questions from the 1950s. Give it a shot at theworld.org. Our series Beyond Class continues tomorrow. We'll hear from two middle-class women, one Egyptian, the other Ukrainian. Both took to the streets to protest against their governments. Suddenly, everybody understood that it's the moment that you can decide and you have to take part. And it was very new feeling. Revolution and the middle class tomorrow on The World. Three climbers died on Mount Everest this weekend. They reportedly died of exhaustion and altitude sickness on their way down. After reaching the summit, two more climbers are missing. The world's highest mountain is said to be in particularly dangerous condition this year, and one respected expedition organizer canceled his group's entire season earlier this month. But Everest is still more crowded than ever. Chris Bonington is one of Britain's most experienced mountain climbers, having first tackled Everest in 1961. He says things have become considerably more dangerous because of the upsurge in commercial expeditions. Once you have that, and you have guides, you have fixed ropes, it means that comparatively inexperienced people who can afford to pay the fee, which I believe is something between twenty-five and $60,000, you, you get people of all kinds of abilities going, and they can cope with it, provided everything goes all right. Uh, what I think happens, I don't know exactly what happened on this present accident, but I rather gather that there was a change of weather, there was bad weather on top, and suddenly these comparatively inexperienced people are in a situation that they can't cope with. So we have too many people with too little experience climbing. Uh, is this a case for more regulation, do you think? Climbers don't like regulation. I don't like regulation. But once you have kind of guided climbing, and once you have huge numbers, I think there does need to be some kind of regulation. I think there should be a, a limit to the numbers that you actually have on Everest at one time. And one of the problems here is that the south col of Everest is big. It's about the size of a football pitch. So you can get a large encampment on the south col. But then when a window of opportunity occurs, the weather is good, everyone wants to grab that window of opportunity when the forecast is good. And so you could get 150, 200 people setting out one morning or one night to get to the top of Everest all in the same day. And that's when you get bottlenecks, you get people queuing, you get people waiting for an hour, two and a half hours. That hour or two and a half hours, if the weather is beginning to change, could be a matter of life and death. It would seem to the uninitiated that safety in numbers is generally a rule. Uh, in this case, it's, it's the opposite. It's very, very definitely the opposite. Uh, and especially when it's not only numbers, but it's large numbers of, um, of comparatively inexperienced people in some instances. And I think there's a real need now for the mountaineering countries, the operators themselves, and the Nepalese government to sit down and have a really serious kind of conference to decide how do we make Everest not only a safer place to climb on for large numbers, but also 
a much pleasanter place where climbers and clients can have a much more enjoyable and safer kind of experience. Mountaineer Chris Bonington, many thanks for your time. Good to talk to you. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Back now to our geo-quiz. We asked about a Russian city on the Black Sea that's set to host the Winter Olympics in 2014. The answer's Sochi. It's a Black Sea resort city, but the Circassian people consider it their ancestral home. Back in 1864, the Russian army made a final push to slaughter the warring tribes of the Caucasus. Some Circassians survived, and today is the day that their descendants commemorate what they say is a forgotten genocide. Julia Barton has the story. Zach Barsik pays the toll as he crosses from New Jersey to New York City on the George Washington Bridge. you got to go to Queens, that's another $13. So you're talking about almost $35 just to get in this area. Barsik's lucky. His job as a strategic engineer at Verizon Wireless pays the bill. He grew up in the U.S., but he spent his childhood hearing about a place his family hasn't lived for generations, the North Caucasus. Barsik's father immigrated from Jordan in the 1950s, and joined a few Circassians here who were refugees from the Soviet Union. They uh, had great stories. Our history is, a lot of it is based on oral history. And myself growing up in the laps of these men, constantly hearing these stories. So we had a very rich exposure. Barsik grew up speaking Adiga, the Circassian language, and hearing ballads like this one. The song tells the story of 1864, when Russian imperial forces killed thousands of Circassians in the mountains and forced others onto ships across the Black Sea. Historians say most of them died on the journey. Those who survived never saw their homeland again. Between 5 and 6 million Circassians now live around the world. Only 700,000 remain in the North Caucasus. And almost no Circassians live in Sochi, a city between the Caucasus and the Black Sea. That's where Russia is spending billions of dollars to prepare for the Winter Olympics in 2014. Zach Barsik says when Russia won the Olympic bid, it galvanized the Circassian diaspora. Sochi was our capital, and uh, we want to return. We want to have a country. Just like every other uh, people on Earth love to have a country, we want a country. Not surprisingly, Barsik and other Circassians haven't made much progress persuading the Russian government to give up its prime warm coastal real estate. But the Circassian issue has become a surprising headache for Russians. Circassians are moderate Muslims. They haven't been a problem for the Russian state until recently, unlike other Muslim groups in the Caucasus, such as Chechens. But now thousands of Circassians want to return from places like war-torn Syria, the Russian government isn't sure how to respond. They see a non-Russian immigration into the North Caucasus as a security threat. Valery Jutsev is an analyst for the Jamestown Foundation. He says Circassians used to be isolated, but now with the Internet, they're reuniting. In the North Caucasus, the Circassian people 
became much more aware of their history in the past few years. And large part of this is attributed, I would say, to the influence of the diaspora. Circassian youth in northern New Jersey practice a complicated wedding dance called the Widge. The men and women clasp arms in a tight line, then spin on a central axis. Classes like this at the Circassian Benevolent Association help transmit culture to a new generation. But even dedicated activists like Lisa Jerkasi say it's not easy to keep the culture alive. The 29-year-old takes Circassian lessons via Skype from a tutor in Turkey. Adiga is not related to any other language. It has 185 verb tenses. It is extremely complicated. Studying language helps her understand her identity, she says. But it only goes so far. For the longest time ever, I felt like I had something missing. And even till today, I still do. There's some, you know, there's a part of my heart that's broken. Jarkasi's never been to the Caucasus. But she says her heart won't be mended until Circassians have the right to live in the mountains of their ancestors. Short of that, Jarkasi will be among those unfurling the green Circassian flag at Russian embassies and consulates around the world today. Zach Barsik admits, while he's angry about Russia's Sochi Olympics... The games were a rare chance to draw attention to his cause. We don't want to be a footnote in history of a people that got completely decimated by the Russians and they got away with it. And not only that, they went and celebrated the Sochi Olympics on their graves. Barsik is commemorating May 21st on the Black Sea in Georgia, the only country in the world to recognize Russia's treatment of Circassians as a genocide. Georgia has its own conflicts with Russia, Circassians say they don't really care about the geopolitics. They're just glad to have a friendly place to go in the Caucasus, even if it's not home. For The World, I'm Julia Barton, New Jersey. We have an old map showing what was once Circassia on the Black Sea. Also pictures of the Circassian wedding dance called The Widge. It's all at theworld.org. We're going to close today's program with the latest release from South African trumpeter and vocalist Hugh Masakewa. It comes to us courtesy of DJ Manasseh Piri of Joy FM in Lusaka, Zambia. Today I want to share with you the happy music of Hugh Masakewa, known affectionately to us in this part of the world as Bra Hugh, Brother Hugh. It's an album that he's recently released called Jabulani, and Jabulani means be happy. It's a collection of old wedding songs that Hugh Masekela used to hear as he grew up in the townships around Johannesburg in the 40s and the 50s. Here's a song that you may have heard because it was made famous in the 60s by Miriam Makela. Show me the way. In fact, he's turned the lyrics around to apply to his own personal life. And he says, in there, show me the way to Ghana. I want to go to Takoradi so I can pay cows for my lover who awaits for me there so she and I can get married. Absolutely wonderful. The last track that I want to share with you is uh, an unusual sound 
for Hugh Masekela. It is a, a very traditional sounding South African sound, a song called Asilimanga. We have no harvest because we didn't put anything into the ground. No Harvest from Jabulani, the very happy album with all these happy wedding songs that Hugh Masekela used to hear as he grew up in the townships around Johannesburg in the 40s and 50s. My name is Manasseh Piri from Zambia and I will see you again next time. And that's all for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Aaron Schachter. Tune in tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.